just help. Holy Spirit, we need you to move. I am just a vessel, I hope, today that would deliver what you want people to hear. Would you help us to see in the midst of an old, old book, grace in the midst of our ruins, that you, we would see you in your glory In Jesus' name, amen. So when I get up here to preach, except for in in December, I've been preaching through Joshua. So it's been a while since we've been in Joshua. We saw the people come into into, uh, the promised land. God said, I'm going to be with you. Chapter 2, he sends spies in to check it out. Right? And we saw God's protection there. Chapter 3 and 4, they cross the Jordan River. They see the waters parted. God brought them across on dry land, just like on the Red Sea. The people of the land were terrified because they see these millions of people crossing over. Then we saw them prepare in a weird way. There was They celebrated the Passover, and then the men were circumcised. Not the best way to start battle, (laughs) but this is what God said to do, and we saw that he was going to bless. And then they went to the first city, Jericho, and God said, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to tell you to do this weird thing. You're going to walk around the city seven times, right? And then on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times on the seventh day, The walls are going to fall down. And when you go in, I want you to destroy everything. You're not to keep a single thing at all. You remember that? The walls came down. They defeated Jericho. It was awesome. Awesome victory that God fought for them in a weird way. The next town was chapter 7 of Joshua, Ai. If you remember the beginning of that, the men said, well, they went spy, sent spies, checked it out. Ah, we got this. We got this. Just sent a small group of people in. There was utter defeat. Israel was completely defeated. And then God told Joshua the reason there was utter defeat was why? Because there was sin in the camp. He said, when I send you into Jericho, destroy everything. Keep nothing for yourself but a guy named Achan, which means troubler. In Hebrew, right? He had kept stuff from Jericho and buried it under his tent, completely disobeying God. Secret sin in the camp of, of, of Israel caused the defeat at Ai. It caused an utter ruin. All because of one family covering up their sin. Now, I want you to put yourselves in their shoes as Israel. Success, 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 utter failure in a little tiny town. Can you imagine the fear in their hearts? They must have thought God has now abandoned us, right? You can imagine just yourself when you have an utter failure, just the ruins that you've made. 
The word Ai, that little town, in Hebrew means ruins. It's almost like it's a metaphor for our lives and a metaphor for what Israel just went through. They were ruined at this little town. And I know when I go through a major screw up, I feel just defeated. I feel like there's no way I'm going to be able to move forward because I feel like God's not with me. That's how Israel must have felt. In Joshua chapter 8, the very first words out of God's mouth to Joshua is, and in the NIV, he puts it, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. So right out of the gate, they're feeling awful because they just lost this battle. God must have left us, but God speaks again. And he says, don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. We're going to do this over. And that's what chapter eight is. And eight's a little bit of a long chapter, so I didn't put all the words to the chapter over there, up on the overhead. So you're going to actually have to turn to your Bibles. <laughs> to Joshua chapter 8. Joshua chapter 8. Either turn in a physical Bible. I know those Bibles we have in front are just New Testaments. Or open it up on your phone. The way I'm going to approach this, this text today is just answering four questions. What happened here at AI in chapter 8? And then what's different about the conquest at Jericho and AI? How are those two different? Because an Old Testament reader doesn't stop at chapter 8. A Jewish believer, if they had this first in their day, they would have just kept reading. And they would have caught it and brought it all together. And that's what I have to do today is how tie together chapter 6, 7, and 8 for it to make any sense at all. So we're going to ask what's different. And then I'm going to ask what, how did the people respond to this defeat and then the success? And then finally, what does it teach us about God's grace? So um, let's begin by just kind of reading through chapter 8. I'm going to make a few comments as we go through about what we see, what happened here at Ai. Remember, chapter 7, they failed because sin in the camp. Sin that hadn't been dealt with, and then the way they had to deal with it was expose the sin, and Achan and his entire family had to be stoned. And now they have to think, what are we going to do about Ai? So let's start at verse 8, and that's the book of Esther. That is not Joshua. There we go. <laughs> chapter 8 and the Lord said to Joshua do not fear and do not be dismayed take all the fighting men with you and arise go up to Ai see I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people his city and his land and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as its plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So right out of the gate, God is speaking. If you notice in chapter 7, God did not speak at the beginning of that. We'll come back to that later. God reassures Joshua. He says things are going to be okay. And this time AI is going to be handled, handed to you in victory. So let's read verses 3 through 9. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. 
and I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them, and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from, your, from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out and they went to the place of ambush and lay behind Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. So here in those verses, Joshua gives specific instructions about how they're going to do this. They're going to do it with an ambush. It's a trick. They're going to set up a trick. And he takes about 10 times as many people as they did the first time. It was like 3,000 men they took the first time. Now they're taking 30,000 men. And they set up a, an ambush on the west side of the city, which according to the text is right behind the city. So now let's look at verses 10 through 13. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up. He and the elders of Israel before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces. The main encampment was that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, actually, just want to stop there. If you're paying attention, I know people like Donnie will notice this kind of detail. It's going to sound like I thought the ambush was one number and at one location, and now it says a different number in a different location. The way I'm looking at this, I see that it's actually both. He's splitting the army up into actually three parts. One part on one side of the city, one part on another side of the city, and then the trick set that's going to be out in the front. And now we're going to see what he does here. So look at verses 14 through 17. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried, and they went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city, all the people who were called together to pursue them, and as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. So now Joshua, he takes the rest of the army, draws the, attentions of the attention of the guards of the city of Ai, and with a little bit of taunting, the king sees them and says, all right, let's finish these nuisances up. And so he follows them out, and all the men of the town come out of Ai and chase down Joshua. And what are you doing? You're now leaving every, the city full of just women and children weak and vulnerable. And at this point again, we now hear Yahweh, God, the Lord, speak again in verse 18. Then the Lord said to Joshua, 
stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. Now, stop there. Does any Old Testament story come to your mind where you picture an outstretched arm and, and like a, a protruding like staff or, or javelin? Any? What? Moses. And which, what story? With the, the sea, the Red Sea, right? When the Red Sea split, God said, hold your staff out. There was actually another story too. Anybody remember the other one? Exodus 17, he's fighting the Amalekites. He has to hold his arms up and his staff in one. And remember, that's a story where the guys come along and help him hold his arms out. What's the point here? There is a point. It's interesting because this story, you're like, if you were just reading this through your, in your devotions, you're like, wow, okay, there's a lot of military stuff here. I'm sure my guys and friends in the army would love this. What does this mean for me, right? We've got to slow down and see what's going on here. The word staff is used 250 times in the Old Testament. It's a symbol. It's always a symbol, not of the power of the army or the person of the, lead, the leader, it's a picture of God's arm being outstretched. The arm of the, st- the staff being held out is a picture of Yahweh. It's symbolic that the wrath of God is coming against whoever's being fought against. So it, it's, it's like God's arm extending down from heaven, carrying out his wrath. So, for example, in Isaiah 10, 26, um, I didn't have that one on there. It says, the Lord of hosts will arouse a scourge against him like the slaughter of Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it up the way he did in Egypt. So as long as Moses held up the rod or as long as Joshua extended this javelin, it represented Yahweh fighting the battle against his enemies. The attention is then off of the people and it's on to God. That's the point. So you see that staff hanging out there? It's like God is doing this. I know we're out here on the battlefield, but God is the one that's empowering. And frankly, the angel of the Lord is the one doing this fighting here for them. Okay, so now we see the ambush itself happen in verse 19 and 20. So go back there to the text. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. And they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. So you can picture this. They're completely surrounded now. All the warriors of Ai are now out in front of their town. They turn around, their city's on fire. They turn around again, and now they're completely surrounded by Israel's armies. So now we see Joshua and Israel turn back towards them. Verse 21, And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. 
but the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. So Joshua and the army of Israel see that the victory's in their hands, right? They see now it's the time to finish off these enemies of God right here. And the only one they leave alive is the king himself, and he's brought to General Joshua. And now you're going to make it see very clear in verse 24 to 27, the defeat of Ai. Verse 24, when, the is, when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder. The spoil of that city of that city Israel then took that as plunder according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua so, so here, right here, there, we, we're seeing the brutal realities of war, right? This is not comfortable. I mean, you read this, and, and it's just very awful. It's just the brutal realities of war. And, and again, the repetition of the word Ai in a Hebrew reader of this would see the word ruins, ruins, ruins. Over, every time the word Ai is mentioned, their mind goes to ruins. And again, we see the outstretched arm of God, the javelin, mentioned And that's simply to keep you reminding as a reader that Yahweh is winning this battle. And finally, we see the summary of the battle, verses 28. I told you I'm going to go through this fast. Now we're going to to take a look at it, okay? So verse 28 and 29. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins. So that's plural Ai and the ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised it over it, a great heap of stones, which stands there today. So more emphasis on ruins. Ruins, the word keeps just being brought up. Ai had become a ruin for Israel. Achan brought ruin to Israel. And now as a warning to all the pagan nations around them, the king is hung on a pole to be seen by everyone. And this concurs with Deuteronomy. See if we can go back here. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 talks about hanging a person on a tree. It says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Is that ringing a bell for any of you Christians in this room? What's it ringing a bell of, Andrew? Christ on the cross, bearing the curse, the body taken down, right? The one who hangs upon the tree, it says right here, and this is quoted in the book of Galatians as well, is cursed by God. And it reminds us so clearly, in this, this, right in this middle of this passage, about Jesus. It's pointing us there already. And now at the end of the chapter, our story takes an abrupt turn, like a 20-mile turn, actually, to the north. So let's look at this, verses 30 through 35, because it references this Mount Ebal, 
and Mount Gerizim, and that's actually 20 miles north of where this battle of Ai just happened. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God, the God of Israel, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, a servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterwards, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women, and the little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. Now, what's going on here? We just saw a battle. We saw an ambush. It went well this time. And then they traveled just 20 miles north to these two mountains that are right facing each other. They offer up sacrifices of different kinds, and half of the people get on one mountain and shout blessings, and the other half are on the other side and shout curses. This is weird. This is weird to us, isn't it? But this is what's going on here. The half that's divided up, if you look back in Deuteronomy 27, I'm not going to do that now. God gives specific instructions to Israel. When you come into the promised land, you need to renew the covenant. You need to go through this ceremony that I'm about that that we see acted out here. And in Deuteronomy 27, he gives out the clear instructions. He says, you're going to reenact the covenant and the half that goes on Mount Ebal are all the tribes that are connected to Jacob's not lawful wives. So if you read through Jacob's story, he had 12 sons. Six of those sons were not by his wives. They were by his his wives' servants. Those half... Are, those tribes are to, that's Dan, Naphtali, those tribes are to stand on one mountain. The tribes of the lawful wives, Leah and Jacob, are to stand on the other. The tribes that are of the, of not of the, the lawful wives are to, to, to pronounce all the curses. And those curses are what God said he would do if you don't obey me. If when you go into the land... This will, if you don't do what I tell you, you're going to, these are the curses. And they pronounce those. They say, if we don't do this, God will do this. God will do this. God will do this. And then the blessings are what God said he would do if we obey. So they're just rehearsing these back and forth to each other. This is, this is weird to us, but you and I, we do this in different ways. We tell each other truths in community here. We proclaim to each other God's word to each other that he's given to us. And this, they just do it a little different for us. But you, can you imagine how symbolic the, that would be to them? They would see in the middle 
between these two mountains is the town of Shechem, which is where God first met Abraham and gave him the promise in Genesis 12. So it's just so rich with meaning what they're doing here. And it's right there in Genesis 12 when he gave that promise to Abraham that I'm going to bless you. I'm gonna, will, I will bless you. So it, it's very visceral what they're seeing, this shouting back and forth of blessing and cursing and in the middles where God had met them. But here's the thing. The people had realized their utter failure at AI came because of disobedience. The utter ruin came because of disobedience. And now they had a major success and they know that success in this land is going to depend on their obedience to God. And if they don't obey, they see it's going to be a ruin. So I think the way that we can proceed and seeing, okay, well, God, what do you have for us in this chapter? We've kind of walked through, we see what happened. How can we see what God has for us? And I think the way to do it is to compare the two conquests, the conquest of Jericho, the failure at AI, and the success at AI to see, okay, what, did, what, did, what happened there? And there's a danger here. I'm going to show you some failures and successes, how they're different. The danger is that you're going to look at this and go, okay, that's what I need to do. I need to plunder only in the way God tells me to plunder. That, that's not what we're to do, okay? So just hang with me, see these, peril, these contrasts, and then we'll apply it, all right? So we saw what was different. So the first thing I want you to see that's different between the two battles is that God initiated the successful victories. Jericho, he speaks to Joshua and says, here's what you're going to do. In AI, when they succeeded, he says, here's what you're going to do. He speaks first. On the failure to AI, you don't even see him speak. Joshua says, you go do this, guys. The guys come back, and they decide to do. They fail when man initiated. They succeed when God initiated. Okay? Second thing I see between these two stories is that God identified the warfare tactics. This is really interesting. Because in Jericho, he tells them, okay, you're going to walk around the city, do all this kind of thing. In Ai, the successful one, if you look at verse 2 of of chapter 8, God is the first one that says you're going to do an ambush. We see Joshua explain it later, but God first told Joshua, you're going to do an ambush. So they failed in chapter 7 when man laid out how it should be done. They said, oh, it's a small town. Let's just take a few thousand people. We got this. They succeeded when God laid out what should be done. Third difference. God indicated the plundering rules. All right? In chapter 7, when they failed, man just did what he wanted, when he wanted. But in chapter 6 with Jericho, and here in chapter 8, in chapter 6, he says, don't take any plunder. He says, destroy it all. It's a sacrifice to me. It's the first. It's the tithe of this conquest. He says in this one, okay, you can now take the plunder from this town. The point is, you're going to fail when you do what you want to do, when you want to do it, and how you want to do it. You'll succeed when you go with what God says. Next comparison I see is that God ignores the enemy's size. 
between these two towns, God doesn't really care about the enemy's size. But failure comes first when man thinks too highly of himself. Romans 12, 3 is a warning to us that says, don't think more highly than you ought about yourself. And that's exactly what they did in chapter 7. They're like, we got this. I mean, you read it. Go back and read it later today this week. You're like, wow, these guys are arrogant. They think they've got it. I mean, it was a tiny town. And there are so many Israelites. But it's still the acme of foolishness to think you've got it instead of trusting in God. And the irony here is that God regards the nations as nothing. He doesn't care if there are 20 or 20 million or 3 billion. God regards the nations as nothing. It says that in Isaiah 40. Did I put that on there? I didn't. I had put the reference, but I didn't type it up there. And now I'm lost in my notes too, which is also bad. <laughs> That's okay. So we see that God ignores the enemy's size. And finally, God insists on obedience. So when we're comparing Jericho and Ai, failure came. God cursed the nation's disobedience. But in both, in in chapter 8 now, we see God blesses the nation's obedience. The people have learned a very painful lesson here, right? We learned these painful lessons as well. When we come through our disobedience, We have to be able to take time to recognize what happened here. What When I have just utter failure in my life, or maybe minor failures, either way, I don't care the size of it. You need to think, okay, how am I to respond to that? And that's really my third question I want us to ask about these passages. What's the response of the people? How did they respond? And I think there's three things you're going to see. We have to do this as well whether it's a small or large failure or just walking through the ruins that maybe have been put upon us. It may not even be a ruin of your own disobedience. It may be just the ruins of living in this sin-cursed world. I think these three things that the people did is what we need to do. I think the first thing we see is that there was reflection. There was reflection on what happened. They saw their disobedience and they realized their need to obey fully in the mission that God had for them, right? Reflecting on what went wrong, what I did wrong, what they did wrong, is what helped them then remember the commands of Moses. That's why they headed up to Shechem after this battle, 20 miles north, because they reflected, they had to. They had to go back and remember, wait a second, God said to us, when we come into the land, We're supposed to go up to Shechem and on Mount Ebal and Gerizim, renew the covenant. We got, oh, we got to do this. It's this reflection on what I did wrong and what has God told me to do. Okay, I need to now think about this. And I I don't neglect this important practice in your life. It's so easy to just move on from the mess. Like, okay, because Jesus has forgiven my sins, I'm just going to move on, you know. And... And it's, it, we should have a heart that says and trusts and knows Jesus' forgiveness. But you need to take time to reflect on what happened. There should be on a frequent basis in your life some kind of level of introspection into how is it between me and God. 
The point isn't to dwell on our sin, but at least to uncover it, to confess it, and to seek forgiveness from Christ. I think that's essentially what Israel did. They realized we allowed sin in our midst. We dealt with the sin. We're going to obey God now. You need to reflect. How did I sin? How have I messed up, God? Confess it to him. And then his forgiveness, accept that, rest in that. I think the secondary thing that we see that they did, and, and um, yeah, First John 1, 9 is a good one. <laughs> the, the point is, is that you're going to sin as a believer. If you're trusting in Christ, I think sometimes we think, and I know my kids have struggled with this, that once I've come to Jesus, I'm going to have it all figured out. I'm not going to screw up as much or at all. And then they, they, they feel this overwhelming sadness when they mess up. And then they think, I'm, well, I must not be a Christian. First John 1 John 1.9 says, no, 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 Christian, too Christian. If you confess your sin, he is always faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us all in, from all unrighteousness. And that's not like the first time you come to Jesus. I know that because just one more verse, chapter 2 of First uh, John 2, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So take time to reflect on what you've done. This is what repentance looks like. It looks like, what have I done? What does God say it is? Confess it to God as that. And then rest in his forgiveness. The second thing I think that we see that they do is restoration. And these three R's actually still all fall under the picture of what repentance looks like. They offered up two kinds of sacrifices. I don't know if you noticed that there. In verse um, 31, and it says at the end, and they offered on that altar burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. So let me talk about the burnt offerings first. What's the deal there? This is about restoration. Burnt offerings are the ones that were set for atonement. Those are the offerings that they were required to give up that should to offer that pointed to the need. The the sacrifices in themselves did not grant forgiveness, but they were constant reminders of the need for a blood sacrifice for their sins, one that would infinitely cover their sins. And we find grace in the ruins of our lives in two ways, okay? Through Christ's work for us, which declares us righteous, overriding our ruins, and through the Spirit's work in renewing and restoring our lives as he makes us look more like Jesus. So those offerings that they offered point to the sacrifice. When we see that as a Christian now, you know, 4,000 years after this story happened, we look back and we look at the offering that was made for us by Christ on the cross. The ruin of our sin is removed by God's declaration. But the reality is we still make a mess of things. So now when we do sin, that's where those verses of 1 John 1, 9 and 2, 1 come in. When we do sin, we rest in Christ's forgiveness, but we constantly going, reflecting on what we've done, and then looking for the restoration that Christ continues to restore that relationship with us. 
But you cannot just continue to ignore your sin either. Um, The more you leave it undone, not reflecting on it, not going to God about it, the more you do that, the more distance you're going to put in your relationship, your fellowship with the Father. If you're wondering, okay, why is it that it feels like my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? (laughs) I would ask you, Look at your life. Have you taken time to reflect? Am I not dealing with sin in my life that I know I don't want to deal with? You might need restoration by coming back into the light and seeking him with all of your might. I think the third thing we see is renewal. At the end of that passage, the people did offer up a second kind of offering. They offered the burnt offerings. Those are the ones for atonement, for forgiveness of sins. But peace offerings... And a peace offering, that's the kind of offering that God required them to do to renew the covenant between he and them. And sometimes I think it's called a fellowship offering in the Old Testament as well. I see a parallel of us to this with the communion. Every time that we celebrate that, it's us renewing, renew, uh, re- renewing that covenant that Christ made when he sat there at the table and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And every time we have the bread and the wine together, we are renewing that new covenant. It's like a peace offering. It's celebrating that covenant that he's made in his blood for us. But here, they also renew the covenant by inscribing the Ten Commandments on stone again and rehearsing the blessings and the curses. So how do we respond to the ruins of our lives? has to be through reflection, renewal, and, and restoration. And I think the overall effect that that would have had on them by going up on these mountains and shouting the curses back and forth and the blessings. And every time we go to the Lord's table, what that does for us is helps us see grace. How God has given us grace in the midst of our ruins. So that's the last question I just want to ask about this passage. What does it teach us about God's grace? And I'll just be quick, but I think... We cannot leave this passage and not take time to see how does God show grace. And the only way you're going to see grace is if you put it in the context of the mess of chapter 7 where they sinned. Because grace doesn't make sense to us if 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 it's not covering over our sin. It just feels like "Ah, extra. But when I see the mess I've made... See the mess I've made, and then I see him bless me so richly. That's grace. That's grace, right? So first of all, I I think we see in this passage that grace abounds in God's heart. This whole chapter 8, I mean, they messed up in chapter 7. Complete failure. Chapter 8's a do-over. That in itself is grace. The fact that God said, all right, let's try it again. Let's try it again. It's like, it's like, It's a gift to be lifted up out of the ashes and said, okay, I know you failed. I know you messed this up, but I want to give you another opportunity. And I say that this is the heart of God because grace in itself is part of God's character. He is grace. He is grace. And that showing of grace, we see that right in the the fact that chapter 8 exists, shows us that it abounds in God's heart to give you another chance another chance. And God doesn't stop doing that. I think the second thing we see in terms of grace is that God's grace abounds in encouragement. 
That's the very first line of chapter 8. He says, don't fear or be discouraged. The fact that he would say that to Joshua means he's encouraging you and encouraging Joshua. Don't be discouraged. Be encouraged because God's going to continue to give you grace. And I think we also see in this passage that God's grace abounds in his presence. He was with them all through this rebattle. His fighting presence was not there in chapter 7. His fighting presence was with them in chapter 8. We see his presence over the whole thing with the javelin and constantly speaking. If you just look at 7 and 8 this week, God's hardly present in the battle at all. He's not talking. He's totally in this one. God's grace abounds in his presence. When he's there with you, he's going to help. I think there's also grace abounding in God's wisdom. This idea of circling the walls in Jericho makes no sense to us. It's God's wisdom. This ambush, though, is real practical wisdom. Right? I know generals have studied that strategy, Joshua's military strategy, and actually applied it. Real life wisdom isn't just made up out of nowhere. That comes from God's mind. That's grace in itself to give us wisdom. And when you need it, ask him. It says in James, he will give it out for free. When you ask, just ask him for wisdom. And finally, we see God's grace. And this is where we see the most of God's grace is in his covenant. Grace abounds in God's covenant. That's the biggest demonstration we see of grace in chapter 8. The whole standing on two mountains things, that's a visible reminder to us of the gospel. Okay, how is that a visible reminder of the gospel? The mount of curses is ours because we know we'd always be stuck on that mountain were it not for the grace of God. The mountain of those tribes of Israel, of the unlawful wives, there's a B word I want to use in this sermon. That's what we are. Illegitimate children. Right? That's what we are. We would be stuck on that mountain. We know the curse of God is against us. And we cannot cross over to Mount Gerizim, the mountain of blessing on our own. We can't just walk down. We needed the obedience of another to bring us to this new mountain. We needed the blessing of Christ's perfect righteousness given to us. Christ became the curse of Mount Ebal. For us, he bore all of those curses that we deserve. We could have been shouting those curses out with them and saying, this is on me because I have failed. I constantly fail. But Christ bore that and he stood on that mountain, took the brunt of what we deserved. And then he passed through the valley and ascended the hill of blessing because he had clean hands and he had a pure heart. And now we all inherit those blessings of the new covenant. Grace abounds to you and me in Christ alone. So Israel, they saw the ruin of the disobedience they caused. You and I see the ruin, right? But by faith in God, they obeyed and saw him bring ruin to their enemies. We look to Christ now and see that he obeyed for me and I want to live for him. And then I'll see grace after the ruins of my life. And I would say to you today, If you are here and you do not know this grace, you sense the ruins that you have made in your own life. 
and you want that grace, the one who will give you that grace is Jesus and only Jesus. You can't try to obey enough. (laughs) You can try, but it isn't going to work. You'll fail. You'll still fail. But Jesus obeyed perfectly for you, stood and bled and died, hung on that tree, just like the cursed king was buried and raised again by God for you. Today, if you have not come to him and said, Christ, you are my only hope. I cannot do this. I need you. Today's the day. And for those of you that have trusted in Christ and you are trusting in Christ, take time to be reflecting and restoring and renewing that relationship that you have with Christ and his grace will abound in the ruins. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you for the fact that you continue to show grace to us even in the midst of the ruins that we have made of our own lives. Father, I, I know, you know, I look at my own life, I, I have so many regrets, but yet you are continually patient and forgiving of all the sins, past, present, and even future. Pray that you would help me, help us to not trample on that forgiveness Help us to see you in your glory and be astounded by that. That we would rest in that grace that you give and that you would continue to show. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to close this with this last song. Um, I think one of the things that stood out to me in that whole deal was that their sacrifice, their, that whole thing after was unprovoked. And largely, like, you think about um, God usually had to command. He was like, I want you to go to this place. I want you to do these things. And I want you to remind the people. And yet, none of that was done. It was just, hey, it was like Joshua and the leaders were like, we need to reset. And so let's start over. Let's renew this. Let's remind the people. And uh, man, what? Yeah, it just, it stands out to me because I, I think I need to do that more in my heart. And, and to think about the collectiveness of this, like it wasn't just an individual. It was the entire people. It was the entire, all their families and their kids got to see these moments. So um, let's just praise God right now for that because we've all experienced that. And this is a chance for us to reset and recommit.
God, help us to come back to this place in the high and the low. God, that we would revisit you and your grace daily. God, that you would remind us daily. God, that you would encourage us to remind each other daily. We love you. We thank you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. I do know that we're running a few minutes late. And I was thinking about just like ending with Jeff praying. But God has really pressed something upon my heart. And I know I'm to share it because I am nervous as I'll get out to share it. But um, a few years back, I had the opportunity to teach on Joshua in Sunday school. And when Paul started in chapter 8, I remembered something that God really had worked on me on. I had um, for once finished up early preparing something. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm good. This is awesome. And I kept driving to work, and God's like, you're missing something. You're missing something. And that was a horrible feeling because I don't want to miss anything. That's why it takes me so long to prepare for stuff. And um, he's like, look at the strategies. Look at the war tactics. He's like, what does that mean? What's, jo- what's Joshua's? What's mine? And I'm like, well, it means that we just we don't do things in our own strength, and we trust in you. That, that's it. He's like, no, there's more. There's more. And then in his graciousness, he gave it to me. Isn't that how we are to handle sin and temptation? That if you go through life and you're trying to do it in your own strength, epic fail. But if we look at God's war tactics, there's two. Fleeing and fighting. And there's times to flee. And that's okay. Maybe there's a person in your life that brings you down and takes you down that road that, you, that, that God had brought you out of. And you need to flee. There's nothing unspiritual about that. Maybe there's a place you shouldn't go. Maybe you shouldn't have internet access for a time. There's something that you need to flee from. That is okay. And then when you fight, you don't fight in your own strength. You fight through the strength that God gives through the Spirit. And if you fail, you go back to chapter 7 and you read two of my favorite words of God talking to Joshua, and he said two of my favorite words. As Joshua was down on the ground, he said, get up. And that is exactly what you do. You get up. And you don't get up in your own strength, and you get up in the strength that God gives you, and you move on. And we're all going to face this this week. And I, part of the fact that I hate to share it is that means I think I'm going to face it this week, <laughs> and I don't want to. But... May these words be ever so present in my mind as we get to that, if I get to that point. Now, I want to close with our closing verse, Jude 1. Well, Jude, it's only one chapter, but. Um, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.